It's the TEH Podcast, episode number 121. I'm Leo Notenboom of AskLeo.com. And I'm Gary Rosenzweig of MacMost.com. You almost said something else. I almost said AskLeo.com. <laughs> <laughs> There's an April Fool's thing. We should put each other's pictures on our site for April Fool's next yeah, year. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I've done, I, I did, years ago, I did an April Fool's thing windows thing and i had i actually had something planned for this year like in february i thought oh i'm gonna do a video and i'm gonna oh gather these things together uh-huh. well if you remember how this year went yeah by the time april <laughs> first rolled around i i will i was a no boo to do an april fool's thing yeah. and i didn't think, I don't anybody, think anybody else, else was either yeah. either so i shelved it I've done a couple of different things on my site they usually go unnoticed because i'm really really subtle about it one year um, I replaced my picture with one of the dogs. Hmm. Uh, so it was the dog and the masthead for the entire site. And then uh, another year, I just inverted my logo. I put it on upside down. Uh, so you know, like I said, nothing horrendous, nothing that's going to impact people's, you know. Right. But it might bring a smile, smile to somebody's, to somebody's face. face, we hope. Yes. That's, that's Speaking idea. of smiles to the face, yes. what a segue. So <laughs> last week, I mentioned that I had purchased for my wife a new computer. Uh, we had purchased for her one of the brand new Apple MacBook Airs with the M1 processor. And I had indicated that um, they had originally quoted me a ship date of the 30th, which I think at the time we recorded last week had been changed to the 15th. Mm. So it should have arrived today. Um, in reality, um, it arrived about an hour after we were finished recording the podcast. Wow. Uh, yeah, I was blown away. Uh, I was, you know, when you place an order, you always kind of hope that, you know, maybe it'll be a little bit earlier than they say. Maybe, you know, just wish, mm-hmm. hope for the best. Uh, expect the worst, but hope for the best. Well, I, ex- I got better than the best. I was really impressed. Uh, unboxed it, got it all set up. Uh, you know, my wife's really happy with it. Uh, un prompted. She did indicate that it felt zippier than the older machine. Uh, But what's really, I think, making a big difference for her usage scenario is the battery life. Uh, The the old one, I think I mentioned last week that I had to have a couple of different power supplies in a couple of different locations, the places where she normally would use the computer. And uh, because if she was in one place too long, it would shut down because she would you know, run the battery dry. Uh, it's just that old a machine. The battery just mm. doesn't have the capacity that it once did. And now, of course, that's just not an issue. <laughs> just not an issue at all. So I've been very pleased. It's been very smooth. Uh, I have not run into any software that she would use that... Uh, you know, had any problems with the new processor. Google Chrome is out for the M1 processor, and that's what she's used to using. So I was very pleased to be able to install that for her. I installed a remote desktop application. I started using a remote PC for my mm. remote desktop needs, and uh, it just installed and worked. I don't think they did an M1-specific version. Um, I think it is just, uh, you know, the the emulation or whatever they're doing with, uh, what is it, Rosetta? Yeah, Rosetta 2. Yeah, that um, it's just making it all work, which is impressive in and of itself because, of course, a remote desktop application actually kind of has to sort of get its fingers into um, pieces of the system that 
you know, I could see them saying, you know, no, you can't emulate that, but apparently you can. Uh, so yeah, overall, it's been a really good experience. And very coincidentally, uh, she ended up uh, heading out to visit her sister for a few days yesterday and was able to take that one along with her. And like I said, very pleased. Apple over-delivered, under, you know, they, they under-promised and over-delivered. And, and I'm a happy, I don't want to say fanboy, but I am a happy customer with, with what they got. Cool. And actually, uh, yeah, there's been some improvements. Well, today, um, Microsoft released Office 365, yes. the standalone version as M1 native, yeah. um, which is nice. And again, my whole thing of like, this is happening at a much more compressed timescale than 15 years ago with the Power PC to Intel right. uh, transition, which still like a year, you know, a year into it was still going. Um, and the other thing is, uh, I'll be talking a little more about this later, but uh, Mac OS Big Sur 11.1 came out yesterday. And one of the improvements for M1 Macs is the iOS app emulation, or it's not emulation, it's, it's native, they're native running, but the idea that you can run an iOS app in a window on your Mac um, got a major improvement because they just improved how Windows work. And previously, a bunch of my games just did not work very well on it because of the format of the window and that they were a game and all that. And suddenly they work perfectly awesome. and they added the functionality where you could go full screen with any app. So like my Mahjong game, which, you know, kind of should be a full screen game. Mm -hmm. It works great in a window as it should. And you go full screen and it looks beautiful. Um, and you could go full screen, like it stretches to the screen or you could go um, basically full screen, but it it's a, one-to-one -one pixel ratio. So it kind of is a box in the middle of the screen. Right. So big improvement. And I basically went through a whole bunch of apps and found things that just weren't working before now work perfectly. So, so it's a good time to, uh, to get one. Yeah. I keep seeing um, news reports that the, uh, the device is basically exceeding people's expectations. Yeah. Well, an example of the full screen thing is HBO max was one of the few apps that's a, you know, major streaming service app. Mm -hmm. that allow themselves to be on the Macs. Others like Netflix said, oh, hold on, you know, hopefully they're just working on making them better. But HBO Max said, nope, you could do ours on a Mac. And it just wasn't very good because it was in a window. So who wants to watch, you know, a uh, streaming, you know, movie of, or something like, you know, Wonder Woman 1984 next week mm -hmm. um, in a window? Well, now it goes full screen. So actually now the HBO Max app on a Mac is a really good app with just that one simple change. You can watch movies full screen on your Mac now. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. So I was mentioning to someone earlier today that I suspect that the uh, the Apple M1 transition is going to be more, it's going to have more of an impact on the industry than I suspect people realize. Mm. Just because the machines are exceeding people's expectations so much. Yeah, I do have to go ahead. Oh, I said it certainly seems that since its release and reception, Microsoft seems to be talking a lot more about the ARM future Windows, at least, or journalists right. are at least reporting on it. Yeah, and I did see only a headline that seemed to infer that um, Apple on natively on an ARM still wasn't quite uh, wasn't up to the level of, you know, Mac OS on an arm on, on the M one. 
And what it didn't address is whether that's uh, a function of the specific chip, because of course it's not on the same chip that the Macs are, mm-hmm. uh, or if it's just a function of you know Windows own architecture. So I think there's going to be a lot to be shaken out there um, in the yeah. coming months, but I th- Apple definitely has a leg up on it. The other thing I was going to say is that you mentioned uh, HBO Max. Uh, I just, I need to put in my plug. I want HBO Max on my Roku. Dang it. Um, mm-hmm. I've got everything else on my Roku except for HBO Max. And I want to be able to uh, uh, run watch, uh, like you said, Wonder Woman 1984. Yeah. Anyway, uh, let's see. So last week, SpaceX was at it again. Mm. And they launched their serial number eight, SN8 as they call it, Starship, uh, in a high-altitude flight test. I did not watch it live, but I did watch it after the, fa- after the fact. And it was actually pretty impressive. I think one of the things that I'm having a hard time getting my brain around with that guy is just how big it is. Mm. Because when you see it in most of the pictures, it says, well, yeah, it you know looks like a rocket. How big yeah. could it be? Yeah, you don't have anything to scale it against. There's no, there's really no scale, right? Yeah. Um, and apparently it's huge. I mean, apparently yeah. it's really, really huge. Uh, and the uh, the launch went flawlessly. The uh, they maneuvered it some for its uh, you know for uh, its landing. Uh, that was all part of the test. I mean, there was a lot of stuff that really, really went well and went right, all the way up to the point where it didn't. And uh, basically, one of the engines had a problem on the way down, so it had a hard landing, and the hard landing was so hard that it basically blew up. Right. The one thing I wanted to point people at, and, and I will we'll have both of these links in the uh, in the show notes. It's the, there's the official SpaceX YouTube video of the launch, uh, with you know, it's it's actually a two hour video, but the time code that they shared was exactly at uh, just a few seconds before launch, so you can watch that. But you may remember that I think it was last week or the week before we were talking about Arecibo and how mm-hmm. um, you know they had managed to get some pretty amazing footage of the Arecibo dish falling in, and we pointed to the, a video by someone who was basically giving a, a point by point or blow by blow breakdown of exactly what was happening in the Arecibo telescope. It was very educational, very interesting, and very well done. Well, this same guy has done the same thing for the SpaceX flight for the for the. Uh, Starship uh, SN8 flight. And again, it's really interesting, really educational. Uh, He definitely is able to take the videos that were available and point out a few things that, um, you know, maybe you wouldn't have noticed on just having watched it once or twice um, or being able to slow it down and say, here, look, you know, this gas over here, that's green. And that means that this is happening. Uh, so there's a lot of really interesting information. So that's, I mean, if you're only going to watch one video of a starship exploding, um, that would be the one because it, the, the running commentary here is actually incredibly educational and very, very interesting. Yeah, I uh, I, I watched it after the fact as well, but and was impressed by, yeah, the size. And boy, I mean, they're just testing basically the spaceship. It's supposed to go on top of the largest spacex rocket (laughs) right right so the entire so that's only a portion of the entire thing that first launch where they actually put it on top that's going to be something that's that'll be isn't it going to be the most powerful i think 
uh, rocket ever. Oh, I I'm think. sure. Yeah, yeah beating uh, the 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 Russian one that slightly beat the Saturn V in terms of lift power and all that. And then, of course, the whole idea of how it is supposed to go up and then do that belly flop, you know, come back down and and land. I mean, it's incredible. It's it's like the science fiction of the 1950s, but it's um, actually, you know, real. I mean, you didn't think, you know, that the science fiction of the 50s where a rocket would land like that right. is not growing up. I learned that, oh, that's just, that was just silliness. Right. <laughs> you know, this are. is how it really splashed down <laughs> or, you know, parachutes and landing in the desert and all that, or the space shuttle coming in, it's you know, they were look like airplanes and land on runways. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and, and now to be like, wait a minute. So all of those, like people making stop motion animation for like 1950 sci-fi movies, they were right. They were right. <laughs> That's actually how spaceships <laughs> are going to land. Like they're going to look like that and they're going to land like that. Wow. That's kind of interesting. It's like, if you could, you know, if somebody was, you know, frozen in time from like that period to say, you know, maybe 10 years from now when, you know, the, we've got those, types of takeoffs and landings happened all the time, they would be like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's we, exactly yeah. what it was supposed to be. Um, one of the things that's really interesting to me uh, that is actually not true of the 50s versions of these rockets, uh, the fins mm -hmm. on either side towards the bottom, I did not realize how much they move. Um, mm. They're not just statically attached to the side. They're actually uh, hinged to some degree. And that's actually part of what makes the maneuvering happen, uh, especially when it's in the belly flop scenario. Those fins are basically um, angled up so that they're actually aiding in whatever aerodynamics uh, are yeah. involved in getting that thing landed. The other thing that just amazed me, and I, I guess I kind of knew this, and I know that it's true for the other Falcon rockets as well, but there was video from inside the rocket housing. So you're actually looking down at the three engines as they're firing and they move an amazing amount. Um, and in fact, it's one point, you know, obviously all three engines are firing for the takeoff, but at some point, one of the engines shuts down and you think, oh no, that's a problem. But no, not only is it not a problem, it's the way it's designed and the engine very politely gets out of the way. So it actually rotates or gimbals off to the side so that the other two engines can uh, more easily maneuver and point to where they need to point. Um, wow. I, the, the amount of maneuverability in those three engines, all of them, uh, is pretty, pretty amazing. And it was fairly impressive to see that specific camera angle, uh, you know, <laughs> while everything was still intact. Hmm. We're in the future. Yeah, no it. kidding. <laughs> um, and finally, the, the other thing I wanted to bring today, uh, yesterday, Google had an outage. Yeah. And uh, I think I was impacted very briefly in the sense that um, when I got up, actually, by the time I got up, you know, it was all over, but the shouting, the... Um, uh, you know, my inbox didn't have nearly enough email in it um, until like five minutes later, and then all of a sudden everything showed up. Uh, for other people, I think that there were some more severe issues uh, accessing Google services, getting email delivered, doing whatever um, you know, services were impacted, just even being able to use them at all. I think maybe for a lot of us on the, on the West Coast, it may not have 
you know, like I said, it yeah. may already have been over by the time we got to our machines. Anyway, uh, today they announced exactly what went wrong. And um, I, I, I guess I feel comforted by the fact that, oh yeah, we had a bug and oh yeah, we ran out of memory. So the, the uh, system that apparently handles some level of their authentication, and I don't know if that's user account authentication or some kind of intra-server or intra-process authentication that they use on their backend. Um, it, there was a bug that caused it to be misconfigured with not nearly enough memory to handle all of the incoming um, requests. And it kind of sort of choked. So uh, I, like I said, I, I find comfort in the fact that uh, even large companies can have what amount to being simple bugs that uh, come across as very simple, very common errors that I think anybody who's written any amount of software at some point will have encountered. Uh, Lord knows I've certainly had my written my share of bugs and uh, uh, you know, run out of memory uh, when there just wasn't that much. Fortunately, it was only me having to deal with it rather than millions and millions of customers. But mm. it happens. Yeah, I mean, I think a big impact was because of the pandemic and because so many people are doing school remotely, um, a lot of people use Google services for school stuff. I know my daughter does. So, you know, she wasn't impacted because... Again, you know, mountain time, West Coast time, you know, it was all over by the time we woke up mostly. Uh, but East Coast, it affected students probably all the way from upper elementary school, you know, mm -hmm. through college a lot more suddenly to have, not have access to their Google Docs, Google Calendar, Google Meet, uh, that kind of thing. And, and Google Mail, too. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it is a relief to... I mean, the bad thing would have been like, oh, there was a vulnerability right? and, you know, all this. But the, and the good thing is, oh, no, it was just a simple bug. We fixed it and we're now a little smarter. <laughs> yep, we've, we've fixed the bug, rebooted the server, all should be well. It's funny because actually what you mentioned reminds me that, you know, given the last nine months worth of pandemic-induced um, isolation and um, uh, computer use, you know, online use, it's actually pretty darned amazing that things have been as resilient and as stable as they have been. Um, all yeah. of the major services involved in communications, and that's just, you know, be it Google or Zoom or Microsoft um, or any of the others, um, uh, the folks that do go to webinar, WebEx, I mean, they're all seeing, I'm sure, unprecedented levels of use, uh, which is, you know, obviously good if they can handle it, and they all seem to be handling it pretty well. Uh, you know, as, as we've mentioned before, this particular podcast is recorded using Zoom, but Zoom is one of those things that, I mean, it's like, it's, if anything, if any piece of technology comes out of the pandemic a winner right now, it would seem to be Zoom hmm. because Zoom seems to have the best experience um, and seems to be handling everything really, really well. That's actually fairly impressive. Yeah, I mean, the internet, in a way, was built for this. Um, I was just thinking that, you know, of course, I have websites like you do, and mm -hmm. we have them on servers, and those servers are not anywhere near us, not even in the same state as either one of us, um, and we have never even seen the computers that are on them. And that's been true since the very beginning, at least for me, 1995 is when I had my first website up. 
that was at a remote location. I never saw the server. And for 25 years, I've never even been in the same state as the server hosting my business. And so, yeah, 25 years of doing that, the internet has this down. So the idea of like being able to be home or having the companies like Microsoft and Apple and Google with all of their employees pretty much working remotely, except for a handful that can't, um, I mean, it comes natural to the internet. Yep. Uh, can you imagine if it didn't, if, if for some reason we went with a model where, you know, everybody's server was in their office, you know, rather, or, you know, you had a company, you had your server in one room, you had, you know, things like that. I mean, it would be very different, but the internet from the beginning was really designed with the idea that servers were not necessarily where the people who had to administer them, control them, build content for them, you know, were located. I was speaking recently to someone who um, works for uh, a large company that had been in the process of moving from their own data center to uh, AWS. So basically they had their own computers, their own mm. servers in their own rooms, and now they don't. And the timing was perfect. I guess they finished it up at the beginning of the year. But uh, then all of a sudden, all the employees needed to move to re remote working. Mm. And that worked out just fine. <laughs> the pragmatic problem with remote work was uh, getting webcams. Uh, yeah, because everybody was sold out. As you as you probably know, yes, especially uh, like the second quarter of this year and through the summer, uh, webcams and related uh, materials were often very, very difficult to come by. I yeah. feel uh, very lucky that I already had what I needed to get the, get the job done because if they were available, they were very expensive. Yeah. But uh, no, the system, the internet has all been amazingly resilient. And uh, I think that's... Uh, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, people are depressed enough as it is. Can you imagine what it would have been like had you know we've been facing internet outages every day, or um, you know, uh, unable to get our work done because of of communications right. problems? Right. Yep. Definitely. So, hmm. anyway, that's my stuff. Yeah. So I had mentioned earlier uh, how Apple came out with Mac OS eleven point one. They also come out with iOS and iPad OS fourteen point three this week. So. One of the features that goes through all of those is a new feature in all the app stores, the Mac App Store, iOS App Store, that is privacy labels. So the idea is in Apple's ongoing, you know, pro uh, privacy stuff, um, they are asking developers of apps to basically provide lots of privacy information. Now, they always have. From the very beginning, I had to supply a privacy policy. You know, and you could go, if you go to the app store for my apps and for anybody's apps, a lot of, there's a link for privacy policy and it goes to my website and there's my privacy policy. And those privacy policies predated apps. They were on websites, you know, mm -hmm. and you say, oh, here's what I gather this information or I don't gather this information or whatever it is. Well, I mean, now it's much more like, all right, there's all these checkboxes. You got to go through and say, my app does this, this, and this. And it's a long list. And then they take all those checkboxes and they compile it into labels that kind of, you know, they're comparing them to the nutrition labels in the back of, you know, food boxes and cans okay. um, showing you, you know, what this app does. So you might look at an app in the app store uh, with, you know, the latest software now for Apple, and it may have a section that says privacy. Uh, and under it, it says this app uh, uses your location. Uh, it uses your, 
you know, device ID. Uh, it tracks, uh, you know, for advertising information, all this stuff. There's all these different little checkboxes for things. Um, and they're very nice looking, nicely designed and all that. And it's generally a good idea. However, <laughs> um, there, the problem is, there are a couple problems with it. First is a lot of users aren't very educated in terms of what, what that all means. And the second thing is, is that just because an app can access something doesn't mean, number one, that it will. And number two, doesn't mean it's using it for anything bad. As an example, you may have an app that says, this is going to use your email address. Um, and you may think, oh, oh, you know, why? What, what's it for? It's a word processing app. <laughs> why would it need my email address? Well, there's a feature in the app where you can collaborate with other people. Mm -hmm. And when you do, it's going to use your iCloud account. And um, so if you use that feature, of course, your iCloud account's involved, your email address is involved, all of that. So there's a whole bunch of privacy things. And I'm describing pages, you know, word processor, a thing you wouldn't normally think would have any privacy uh, you know, issues. Um, pages will use all that if you use collaboration. If you don't use collaboration, which is probably true 99% of the time, right. it's not going to use any of that. But yet the privacy label has to be there that it says, yes, it has access to your account information, your email address, your name, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, it's using that so you can collaborate with somebody else if you choose to use that feature. So there's really nothing to be worried about there. Yet it has the same privacy label as an app that, say, would just take your email address and use that to track you for maybe, you know, not good reasons. Spam. Yeah. So, so the idea is that without knowing why it's using that information, it's really hard to judge the privacy label. And it's really hard, easy to see something and say, whoa, I don't want to use this app, even though there's really nothing to be afraid of. I had a user um, a week or two ago uh, ask me about the privacy new privacy features of Safari, which there's a button at the top of Safari, and you click on that button, and it tells you uh, this page contains so many different trackers. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is that, you know, you go through your life think, not thinking too much about trackers, tracking, mostly advertising trackers, and some statistics trackers, you know, tracking, you know, uh, users' routes through websites, things like that. Right. Um, you don't think about those much. So suddenly you have this button and you say, oh, let me click it. And then you get, you know, this website is it's using 30 trackers, right? which is exactly what you get if you go to CNN.com right now. Right. <laughs> uh, if you go to like, I, I did this just before the show, you go to like yahoo.com, it's, it's, it's at 19 trackers. If you go to one of our two sites, <laughs> it says a bunch of trackers too. Um, and you can say it these was are fine. Just, that's fine. I, I, the, I know that they're there. <laughs> if you have advertisements on your site, as I do, then they're going to be trackers. I yep. mean, the ads are going to, you know, be report at very least reporting that the ad was shown, right. <laughs> you know, so it's normal. However, I had a user panicked, came to me and said, I must have malware. I must have really screwed up. Just about every website I go to shows a ton of trackers. What is wrong? They didn't actually, it took a few emails to get to that information. First, it was just like, something's wrong. I'm getting these warnings. 
Oh, what warnings? Where are they? Oh, they're in Safari. Oh, okay. What do the warnings say? You know, well, where are, is it from that privacy button? Is that the warnings you're talking about? They're not really warnings. They're just, you know, telling you what trackers are on each site. And um, so, yeah, so you get this like, oh, 30 trackers, something's wrong, right? Either the site is not good or maybe I have malware some somehow. The same thing with these app tracking or, you know, the app privacy labels too. It could be very easy to look at an app, uh, see a whole bunch of things and think, oh, okay, this app, this is like really bad, right? This app is tracking me. Okay. They're spying on me. They're looking at my every move, everything I do, you know, right. when it's not even true. All of my games that have ads in them are going to have a list of these things. And if it wasn't for the fact I was showing ads all from Google AdMob, right? The biggest mobile mm -hmm. ad network out there that most of the ads you see in mobile apps are from Google AdMob. If it wasn't for Google AdMob, mine would simply say there are no, no privacy issues at all, like nothing, zero. But as soon as I put that ad in there, all of a sudden there are, I think, 12 different checkboxes right. that I have to check. Right. And most of them are, you know, for the purposes of serving ads, this is looking at your course location. In other words, not your exact location, but your neighborhood. Right. You know, this is looking to see if the app crashes. This is looking to see if when the app launches, because as soon as the ad serve, it counts as one ad served and it, you know, I can get paid and all of that stuff. There's all these checkboxes, but all it's doing is just serving the ad. The same thing it's been doing for 10 years. Right. Now there's, you know, a bunch of warnings on there. And you know, I, I, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about it because I like having it. I've thought of, tried to think of solutions. You know, one solution would be explain what each checkbox check is actually for. Like, why is that there? Like say, okay, the reason it's tracking your course location right. is because it could, so ads can ser be served up that makes sense. In other words, it's not going to show you like a pack bell ad. If you're in Colorado, it'll show you a CenturyLink ad, right? Right, you know, makes sense. Um, things like that, and then you could say, "Oh, that's all it's using it for. It's not recording it. It's not storing it in a database. It's not adding my name to a spam list or any of that stuff." You know, email address, using your email address. So when you share with somebody, it could you could choose to say yes, share with them, and send an email, and the email's from me, instead of taking your email address and putting it into a marketing list. You know, two different things right now, one checkbox, but, um, you know, if it did that now, if it did all that, you would go from privacy labels to, again, it would just be a big privacy policy again. Say privacy agree. paragraphs. Yes. Yeah. It would be big. <laughs> so, you know, what's how, you know, what's the solution for that? Um, even the idea that like things are optional, you know, you know, oh, sharing your email address, but it's optional. It's not something that's not automatic just from using the app, but the, it's done when you make the obvious like I'm going to do something that requires my email. Right. So that one of the things that I've kind of wished that um, many of these privacy requests would allow us to do um, is decline specific items. Yeah. Right. So normally when you install an app, here's what we do, take it all or leave it. Right. That's, that's yeah. pretty much the option you have. Um, I realize that does make things more complicated for the app developer, but I think it's also one of those things where 
uh, you know, as a user, you feel more comfortable if you can say, well, no, I don't want you to have my email address, so I'll turn that off. I'll prevent you from getting that. And then if something breaks in the app later, you can suddenly say, oh, yeah, okay, I guess I need yes. to go turn that on. Yes, I would like I, that would work really well um, because you could already do things like that. Like you can already in iOS go in and say no location services right. for this app. Right. And the app will behave appropriately. And right. in my case, I don't have to do anything because it's not my code that is looking at location. I don't care. Right. I'm never accessing that. But it's the code that shows the ad that's doing that. So right. if the ad right now doesn't get location information, it handles it just fine. Right. So I'd be just fine with uh, you know, having it show that it's optional or you have to, you know, select that or whatever. But right now I just have to show, yes, this app does request location information because it in fact does. So. I do think that there's a good argument that says that um, if you're going to, like Apple is doing, essentially make this level of permission granularity that much more visible to users, I think it becomes in every application's best interest to somewhere, not necessarily there on that particular page, but have a, a more info link or something that says, okay, you know what? Yes, here's why we want your email address and here's how we use it. Just a page that explains why all those privacy things are, yeah. are turned on. I'm the actually planning on doing that. The, yeah, the problem of course is though that, um, well, there's two problems with it at least. One is it becomes um, additional work for every app developer. Uh -huh. to document how they're using these permissions. So all of a sudden, you know, I as a programmer make an API call that has this side effect. Um, now all of a sudden I have to go update this information about privacy. Um, and the other of course, is that we all have to trust that you're not lying, right? Right. Um, we all have to, to trust that um, you actually are asking for this particular capability for the reason you claim you're asking for and um, nothing else. But I think that, uh, at any rate, apps that uh, can somehow clearly, you know, for each checkbox that they check, um, have something in some plain English that says, yep, you know, if you use the collaborate feature, that's why we need your email address. Yeah, I, I, so I'm planning on taking uh, screenshots of these labels, mm -hmm. making a page, and basically explaining that none of these are things that the game actually uses, right. but the ads and you know link to google ad mob or whatever and saying you know the largest advertising network you know for mobile apps uh is using these and here are some examples of you know and just explaining things like you know why your course location is used and you know for advertising purposes and all of that and maybe just, even say why it's a good thing right i mean yeah. it's it's the yeah, sense I, that like I you said earlier you'll get ads that actually might be relevant to you instead of ads for something you'll never you, you couldn't possibly use right and i think uh the idea basically being you know nobody's probably ever going to look at that page voluntarily like just out of the blue but when i get emails from people complaining or asking I, instead of having to write each person individually, I could say, oh, I have a, a you know, page about this page for that. read more. I think that it would be useful. The, 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 the time I expect people to be most concerned about this is when they're browsing the app store. Mm -hmm. And it would be nice if underneath that list of labels on the nutrition label for your app, mm -hmm. um, that there was the opportunity for you to say, um, see more, just a link to click. 
that would then take you to the very page. Yeah. I mean, there is a link for the privacy policy and stuff. So I don't know. We'll see. And then, of course, the other thing is, is that eventually people looking around for apps, you know, if they, if they want to play my, say, my 40 Thieves Solitaire app, um, eventually all of the 40 Thieves Solitaire apps that are, that are out there will have similar privacy labels right. on them. Right. So if they see mine and say, whoa, no way, look at that, you know, they're going to look at two or three others and say, oh, wait, they all say this. And and they probably won't go back to mine, but hopefully that happens to them several times. So by the time they look at my 40 Thieves privacy, you know, right. my 40 Thieves app, and they're used to the fact that, oh, yeah, there's privacy labels. There, you know, if there's ads, then there's all these checkboxes yeah, there. You may not be the first in line, but in those cases, then they'll, yeah. have, been, they'll have been inoculated against the uh, the privacy disease. Yeah, so we'll, so we'll see. And also people, you know, the other part of this is uh, I've noticed a lot of users who who aren't internet savvy because they shouldn't be i mean you don't to right. use the internet you shouldn't need to be a privacy expert a security expert a it expert you know all that you shouldn't have to be right, right? we sh people like you and me should be making the internet easier for everybody to use right absolutely now for uh, but for people that aren't internet savvy because they don't have to be uh, a lot of times the difference between security and privacy is not understood so you get I, I've even had people who have read articles about privacy where the word privacy is used exclusively. The word security is never used. And when they ask me about it, they use the word security. You know, they're confusing two different things. Interesting. You know, privacy issue is everything's working as it should, <laughs> you know. Just that maybe you know, there's some information that the app is going to be asking you for, going to be using, that's designed like it's designed that way. Security is when things aren't working as designed, right? Somebody breaks in, gets information that they shouldn't. There's malware, maybe you know there things is, like that. In in the Venn diagram between the two, though, there is definitely some overlap, and I think that's what makes it somewhat difficult. <laughs> Yeah. for for the average consumer to uh, to be able to draw a hard line to know you know that this is a privacy thing or this is a security thing I mean it, it and if there's a, a security issue should almost always be completely avoided like for instance if an app you're using has a security issue in its current version right now it needs to be dealt with immediately you need to know what's going on you know it's like maybe not use that app you know there's or maybe not use that function at whatever. However, privacy issues are something that may just be designed and built in. And you, you, the, all you could do is use the app, not use the app, right. and be aware of the, it, the privacy concerns. Yeah. You know, right. I do think, though, to go back to the, um, uh, the explanation page for all these different levels of privacy, mm -hmm. the privacy checkbox list, one of the problems with privacy policies is that now your average consumer also has to be a lawyer. So they yeah. have to understand security, they have to understand privacy, and they have to understand legalese. That's one of the reasons, and honestly, I think that that's one of the, the, the values that you and I at least try to bring to the table is, is a, a, a glorified Google Translate, right? We try and translate technology into plain English. The right. same is true for the privacy policy. So if there's going to be a, a see more kind of explanation for the privacy checkbox list, I don't, if it says privacy policy, people, are, people aren't going to cl ever click on that link because they've clicked on it once and they were faced with page upon page of legalese. 
there really should be something simple in plain English. This is, you know, this is what we're doing. Mm-hmm. So privacy, good security, <laughs> yeah. good security, necessary security, necessary. Okay. <laughs> I would say privacy, good security, necessary. Um, yeah. So, uh, moving on from, from that to lighter sure. subjects, uh, did you, have you watched the queen's gambit? I have heard of it, uh, from a couple of different places, actually, including, um, at least one, someone who is very heavily into chess, who actually thought it was excellent. Yeah. I, I was strong armed into watching it by Netflix <laughs> because, because Netflix, you know, I, I don't know. They've, you know, I don't know whether it's, they were just pushing it big time to everybody probably, or they really were like, Gary, this, our algorithm, boy, you got to watch this. Like we're going to be relentless showing you this <laughs> every time you go into Netflix to view something else until you watch it because our algorithm knows you will love it. So after a few weeks, submit to I, the algorithm, I gave in and I said, <laughs> all right, I'll try the first episode. And of course I was hooked immediately. And it's only, it's a limited series. In other words, what they used to call a mini series, right? right. So it's eight episode uh, mini series. That's um, funny. Eight episodes is a mini series here in the UK. It's a, it's the entire series, right? Yeah. It's entire series. <laughs> uh, it, it is excellent. Um, I, I was surprised. I was really skeptical. I was like, you, it can't possibly be as good as other things I've seen. And, you know, right. it's, but I watched it and it was very good. Uh, I tried to figure out why I enjoyed it so much. I don't want to give any spoilers, so I won't talk about some of the reasons I enjoyed it. I will talk about, you know, the fact it's beautifully shot, you know, definitely, you know, you wouldn't think having people talking about chess and sitting in rooms playing chess, you need to have 4K <laughs> resolution, but you'd be wrong because it's beautiful. <laughs> I mean, the the scenes and the colors and everything in it, it's like, yeah, you want to watch this on a high resolution, big TV, 4K. It's beautiful to look at. Um, the uh, it, it there are a lot of sports movies, right? You know, I sports movies, whether it's boxing, baseball, right. football, whatever it is, you know, they make you feel good. Most sports movies involve winning, right? Some underdog team, uh, you know, or a misfit or something, you know, wins or accomplishes something, and you feel really good about it. Um, you get that sports movie feeling from this, but you're watching people play chess, uh, <laughs> which as a geek made me feel really extra good because <laughs> to get that, that same sensation, you know, feeling, cause I, you know, I'll watch an occasional football movie or even boxing movies. And I am not a fan of football. I'm a baseball guy. I actually do not like boxing at all, Right. but boxing movies you now. All right. You know, I'll watch those. And, you know, you feel good when you see, you know, your side win and, you know, the, the main character win or whatever. So to see that actually, but it's chess <laughs> was, was great. It was like, wow, you can get that same emotion, you know. Now from, remind me this, I forget, is this documentary or fiction? No, it is fiction. It is fiction. Okay. So it's, but it is uh, historical fiction. So it is set in the sixties. Um, and that's a big part of it is, you know, set in a different time. The, you know, everything's historically accurate in terms of technology and, mm -hmm. and fashion and, you know, things play a big part, you know, the, the period plays a big part in it. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was, it was super enjoyable, uh, series and, and a little geeky cause it's 
chess rather than you know some you know sp athletic sport and uh and it made me wish i mean of course i i've played chess before i'm not very good at it and right. i never really played it seriously or anything Same just, here. Yeah. just knew how to play and all that but it kind of wish i uh it made me wish that I had maybe played more um, in my youth um, or any point in my life, really, than I than I actually did. It certainly made me appreciate it. So anyway, recommended. Cool. It's funny. I, I actually hadn't planned on rec or mentioning this, but I um, ended up, your, your comment about being a period piece basically said in the 60s reminded me that we are in the middle of watching um, the Hardy Boys. Mm. Did you ever read the Hardy Boys books when you were young? I did. I did indeed. I had the full collection. I, I so, read the Well, I don't know if finish. it's full, but it's a big box. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, hardcover, of course. Yep. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think my, my Hardy Boys, they, they've disappeared at some point. I still have my collection of Tom Swift, which was done by the same oh, publisher, yes. science fiction-y yep. type stuff um, at the same time. It's funny. They were both, I think... Um, published as coming from a single author, but in fact, it was, you know, some kind of a workshop where they were, yeah, um, uh, you know, random people were all pseudonymously, whatever, publishing under the pseudonym. Anyway, uh, we've been watching that and it's okay. It's not the Hardy about the Boys. original series or to some new, something new that I haven't. This is a new series. This is oh, 20, okay. 2020. Oh, okay. I did not yeah. know about yep. this. Um, and it is not, um, uh, it's not your father's Hardy Boys. It's not the the Hardy Boys from the books in the sense that you're not going to fi find any familiar storylines. I think the even the age difference between the two boys is a little bit different. I think the father's name is different and random things like that. But it's still the same fundamental premise. Uh, you know, two brothers who are the son of a private investigator end up becoming um, involved in private investigation stuff. Um, and it too is set in the sixties and they aren't particularly, or no, it's seventies actually. They yeah. aren't particularly blatant about it. I mean, it's not like it's super obvious that it's happening until you suddenly realize that all the phones are corded and a few of them have rotary dials. Um, mm. so it's, you know, somebody was talking about, Ooh, push button phone. The, um, so it's been interesting um, if you're a Hardy Boys fan, if that was something from your from your childhood, it's probably worth you know catching up on. I will say that uh, Hardy Boys the books were basically standard mystery kind of fiction. Yeah, this uh, series uh, actually um, brings in what do I want to call it? A little bit of magic, I guess you'd call it. Ooh, um, don't like that. Yeah, yeah, it's not so. It's not the same, you know, based in reality. This could really happen, kind of stuff. Uh, but uh, but it was still, you know, entertaining. It was it was diverting for the I think eight or ten episodes we watched. So it's huh. uh, uh, like I said, it's not it's not my highest recommendation, but it is something that if you're a Hardy Boys fan, you might want to check out. Huh. Well, yeah. So a few a few notes on that. First, I I have to mention that not only did I uh, bring with me through life to this point, a big box of Hardy Boys books from my youth. Mm -hmm. But when we got married, my wife brought with her a big box of Nancy Drew books ah, ah, about yeah. the same amount. And now yeah. they sit next to each other in our storage. <laughs> uh, you know, for, for a while, they sat on the bookshelves of our daughter as she was growing up, but now they're ah. back in storage boxes next to each other. Um, the hardback, uh, you know, books. And That's we both funny. have up to, it's up to like some number, like number 30 or 40, right, you know, the right. complete series. And then it gets sporadic after that. I, well, I did read Hardy Boys 
the I was um, actually a bigger fan of an alternate series that I don't know if you've ever heard of called The Three Investigators. Nope. The Three Investigators was a Hardy Boys-like series. It was a little less formulaic. And the kids were a little younger. It was um, three boys, but there was I think there was a girl that was also sometimes involved too. Uh, and they were middle school age. And there was originally an Alfred Hitchcock tie-in. Originally, it was Alfred Hitchcock's Three Investigators. And the first so many books were published like that, including the three boys in each story having a meeting with Alfred Hitchcock, <laughs> who basically would, as a movie producer, director in Hollywood, because they, they were in Hollywood, would occasionally come across an interesting thing he needed investigated or a friend that asked him for help. And uh. he would refer, he would call the three boys in and say, I have a case for you kind of thing. <laughs> and at some point, the series, there was some legal thing. And, you know, this is after Alfred Hitchcock had passed away, of course. And the series was tied up and all of that, and then was republished as just the three investigators. And Alfred Hitchcock's name was changed in there. So they were actually meeting with somebody who was a Hollywood producer or whatever, but had a different name. Interesting. <laughs> so, yes. And it were, I think there were only maybe two dozen or books or so. And there were a few TV, made for TV movies that came out at some point uh, that you could probably find by looking at like an Amazon Prime video or something. But yeah, Three Investigators was kind of kind of a more neat. I mean, they lived, it was more Spielberg y. You know, they lived, uh, they had a, they all had families and all, but they, they, there was a junkyard and they had their base hidden in the junkyard. Hmm. Like it was like a clubhouse That's and funny. they had all of their equipment. And yeah, anyway, it was kind of neat. Um, and the other thing I was going to bring up was the, uh, the, you said the use of magic. Huh? And that was one of the things that disappointed me about, you know, when, when the Scooby-Doo franchise went to those live action movies, mm -hmm. that was disappointing to me because they had magic in those movies. Right. And in the original Scooby-Doo, everything, I mean, cartoons from the original cartoons right. all the way through to cartoons that they still were making, uh, they would usually be little TV movie cartoons in the 2000s. It was, there was never anything supernatural. Right. It, it was, was always some guy with a sheet. There was always a scientific, <laughs> <Or the> mask. <laughs> reasonable explanation. Yeah. So, with, so the funny thing is, is when they went and while it was a cartoon, there was always a reasonable explanation, no matter how bizarre it seemed what was going on. They always found out what caused it. Right. And then when they went to live action, strangely enough, they actually allowed real magic, which, uh, which while those movies are, are good, it really disappointed me that the Scooby-Doo franchise has those in there because um, I thought that was a really important thing about Scooby-Doo. As, you know, as, as a skeptic, as a lifelong skeptic, of course, of course. I loved Scooby-Doo and I love <laughs> the fact that you could point, you know, you could point to it and say they, they never went there until those live well, action movies. It's funny as we continue down this little bit of a diversion, my, um, so I brought Hardy boys and Tom Swift yeah. to, the, to the marriage. My wife brought Trixie Belden. Hmm. That's another series that you may not have heard of. It's kind yeah. of like a Nancy Drew type thing. Um, I thought of Nan it's funny you mentioned Nancy Drew. Nancy Drew actually is another live action series that was yes. redone, I think, last year. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, I watched like the first episode. Uh, we watched the whole series. We enjoyed yeah. it. But once again, I know exactly why you weren't into it then, because it absolutely had, you know, magical type stuff yeah. going on. Um, mm. Again, it was entertaining. Uh, when I, It's funny. When I look at a lot of these series, a lot of the, uh, uh, the settings look familiar. Mm. And the reason they look familiar, of course, is that a lot of them are filmed up in Canada just across the border from me here in British Columbia. And the uh, the fictional town that Man Nancy Drew is set in, um, there was this ferry boat in the background and I was looking at it. I was like, you know, gosh, that thing looks so familiar. And oh yeah, it just happens to be one of the, uh, the British Columbia uh, ferry systems boats um, mm. that they uh, just happen to have in the background. And all the cars have Canadian license plates and um, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's set on the East coast, but it's filmed on the West coast. So everything's, you know, all the trees are wrong, but, uh, but they look very familiar. We also have that case where depending on what show you're watching, there's like a, a, a click of maybe a dozen actors and actresses um, who show up in multiple shows. And one of the, one of the commonalities is that all of those shows happen to be filmed in, in and around Vancouver. Yep. So anyway, so what I uh, did yesterday to switch gears back into tech briefly is um, I had um, as a, um, a thank you gift for subscribing to my newsletter, a PDF called 10 Reasons Your Computer is Slow. Over the past six months or so, I've been updating it and uh, basically bringing it up to speed. It was a little out of date with respect to Windows 10 and such. So um, I've updated that PDF. And instead of uh, making it a thank you gift for subscribing to my newsletter, I decided to just make it a thank you gift for existing. And um, it is, uh, there'll be a link in the show notes, uh, but there's also a link at the bottom of every article on Ask Leo. It mentioned in the newsletter that went out this morning. Uh, basically, it's a free direct download. You don't have to give me an email address or anything. Just um, you know, have the PDF, speed up your computer. If you found it helpful, uh, come visit the site and maybe we'll have more thing, more good things for you. So it's 10 reasons your computer is slow and what to do about it. Cool. Um, I'll just plug my video from today, which is how to record your Mac screen with audio. Um, I did a video on this in January. Uh, so almost a full year ago, mm -hmm. but the third-party little extension doesn't seem to work in Big Sur. Hmm. Um, I, I didn't expect when I did this video a year ago that it would be so popular. It's been one of my most popular videos of the whole year. A lot of people apparently want to do this. When you do screen recording on a Mac, it records the microphone, right? but it doesn't record the audio from the computer, the internal audio. Right. And a lot of people want to do that. You could probably guess why a lot of people want to do that. Um, <laughs> But there are other legitimate reasons to do it as well. Those uh, error message beeps are really important. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I I uh, decided uh, to, since the video did very well, but the solution really doesn't seem to work very well anymore. And also, I didn't expect the video to do well. So it's a really quick general, like, here's how, here's what you do. And, and a lot of people had questions right. for a lot of people that got you know, kind of stuck in spots. So I took a lot of that into consideration. Sure. I'm using not that's not really a third-party app. It is a third-party app, but it's actually an open-source project hmm. um, that is out. So it, it hopefully it's going to be a little more reliable and have some more longevity than this other thing. Um, so it's a different solution. And I tried to really anticipate all the different questions and 
uh, you know, catches that people might have as they try to use uh, this, uh, knowing that this will probably have a long tail on it. So awesome. anyway, you can check out that video. It's funny. The uh, uh, it is one of the the interesting and ongoing problems for anybody that does any kind of screen recording. As you know, I use Camtasia. And uh, it's basically just baked in. It's a checkbox yeah. for listing. I have no idea if they've updated Camtasia for the uh, for the for Big Sur yet or not. Um, my guess is probably not, but uh, just because I know that there are some things. Of all things, one of the pieces of software that I use um, that I rely on that I was unable to install on my wife's computer and would at some, will at some point um, is Boxcryptor. The hmm. um, uh, the cloud storage encryption tool. Oh, um, okay. So there's definitely some apps that are still in the process of getting themselves ready. Wouldn't surprise me if, especially now that you mentioned that there's an issue with um, potentially recording screen audio. Uh, wouldn't surprise me if some of the apps that do that are lagging. It, it, you know, it could be. Uh, I know ScreenFlow. You don't know the Camtasia competitor, mm -hmm. the, and the one I use. Um, it doesn't. Try to remember what that's. It doesn't work on. It works on Big Sur. That's right. It works on Big Sur, but it doesn't work on the M1 Mac yet. Ah. I have to check to see if they have an update. Um, but the funny thing is, is that it works to edit just fine. Like if you already have the recording done, I can open up on my M1 Mac and I can oh, do I see, the yeah. whole editing process. So it's the screen recording right. that something there and i haven't gone through and said okay what if i don't record audio what if i don't record the screen and only video you know i haven't tried all that stuff because obviously whatever the problem is i still can't fix it i have to wait for them to come up with an right. update but yeah there is a a little catch there so I've i actually to... ran into a very similar problem with camtasia um, not that long ago here on windows where um as i was editing my video uh, you know i've got a beefy machine and and the editor was laggy and it wasn't keeping up and it was out of sync and and uh and so i asked them about it and uh while i was waiting for a response i tried a few different things turns out it wasn't the editor it was the screen recorder the actual format of the video um that was created by its own recorder wasn't necessarily um, uh, optimal for recording. And that's using their webcam. They have the ability to turn on the webcam while you're recording your screen recording. Um, the screen recording is fine. That works great. But it was their webcam support that seemed to have these issues. So I would record them with uh, something like OBS instead um, and then synchronize the video separately. Yep. But um, same thing. It was the recorder, not the editor. The editor worked great. Cool. I think that pretty much wraps us up for another week. Yep. The show notes for this week are at tehpodcast.com slash teh121. If you've got a comment or a question, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at The TEH Podcast, or of course, you can always leave a comment on the show notes page. As always, thank you very much for listening. I hope things are going well, and we will see you here again next week. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.